This is the Dumont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. Hey, everybody. Well, it's been a few years, so thank you for staying subscribed to the TV Room, or thank you for finding the TV Room out there in the podcast universe. Today's episode is going to be all about the 1970s cult classic film, Cisco Pike. And to make this discussion a little more interesting, I've brought in my friend, Ian Rosen. Now, Ian and I have been examining the 70s as a thing since the 1982-83 school year. We've been doing this for a long time. What's new is that we now have the technology to record phone calls and turn it into a podcast. Now, there is no such thing as a short phone call between me and Ian, so this episode is going to be a two-parter. First, a little background on this movie... Cisco Pike was filmed on location in Los Angeles in November and December of 1970. It went into production in 1971 and was not released to theaters until 1972. It was a very limited release to unfavorable reviews. And then it quickly disappeared from the public eye altogether until an old canister was rediscovered in a vault somewhere in the 2000s, and Cisco Pike had a new lease on life as a cult classic. Fifty years has passed since the making of Cisco Pike, so a quick review of the timeline might be in order to help us understand what the movie was trying to say and why it was trying to say it. By the time Cisco Pike was made, at the dawn of the 70s, Hippie culture had begun going from an outside culture to penetrating mainstream culture in various ways. Uh, This had been going on since 1967, what publicists called the Summer of Love. In June of 1967, the Monterey Pop Festival took place. Also in June, Sgt. Peppers came out. Even the Beatles were hippies now, which meant that teenagers everywhere could be hippies now. Fashions adjusted accordingly, and that was the summer of love. And why was the Monterey Pop Festival considered the start of it all? Well, because it was the first time the world as a whole got a look inside this counterculture that had been brewing in the Bay Area. This music-based counterculture that started in clubs with black lights and liquid gel projections and plenty of acid for everybody. Shows that featured local bands like the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, 
Country Joe and the Fish, Big Brother and the Holding Company. These shows went from the clubs to the public parks of San Francisco, where they became the love-ins, and were beginning to attract thousands of people, drawn in not only by the music and the drugs, but also the clothing, or the lack thereof, and the bright colors, and the vibes. These shows had started with Ken Kesey and his acid tests back in 65. They went public on October 6, 1966 in the Golden Gate Park panhandle of San Francisco as a show of strength on the day that LSD finally became illegal in California. This was a daytime festival that attracted perhaps a thousand people, and it led the organizers to the idea of having an even bigger festival in Golden Gate Park itself in the upcoming months. That festival took place on January 14, 1967, in Golden Gate Park, and attracted 20,000 or more people, as well as several media outlets. San Francisco's acid counterculture was now on the national radar, and the Monterey Pop Festival, which took place in June of that year, and would be a three-day festival, featuring the San Francisco bands, as well as musical acts from all over the world. The cameras were there to film it, and it was more successful than anyone could have imagined. By the following TV season, the Smothers Brothers and Laugh-In were on network TV as primetime, 420-friendly variety hours. And hippies were being written into sitcoms like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. By 1969, the year of Woodstock, the love generation had trickled down to the rated G audience. One of the top grossing films of that year was a Disney movie called The Love Bug. Scooby-Doo debuted that year. This was a new kind of cartoon. Five teenagers in a van with a rock and roll soundtrack, if you count Scooby as a teenager. And why not? He's paranoid, he always has the munchies, and he's just as smart as Shaggy is. One of the top Billboard songs of that year was the Bubblegum Band single, Yummy, 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 I Got Love in My Tummy. Love in my tummy. Think about that. By 1971, even corporate Coca-Cola was blowing people's minds by teaching the world to sing in perfect harmony. But meanwhile, back on the cold, hard pavement of 1971, in what was left of L.A.'s freak culture after Woodstock and Manson, it was an economy and a social order based on moving drugs around. In Cisco Pike, like in Easy Rider, the drug being moved around is pot. Pot being considered the good drug, the innocent summer of love drug. But by then, the reality was that the hard drugs, like heroin, like speed, had already ravaged places like Venice Beach and the Haight-Ashbury and rendered them into largely uninhabitable hellholes. So Easy Rider shows the pot being smuggled across the border, but it gets it out of the way quickly and cleanly in the very first scene, without so much as a word being said. In Cisco Pike, on the other hand, the pot gets intercepted violently by a cop, who then forces Cisco Pike to go out and do his bidding. And Cisco Pike is a rock and roll film, and rock and roll was central to the identity of the hippie counterculture. If the Summer of Love began at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, then Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin were its undisputed king and queen of that summer. 
You can see it in the film. For both, it was the first time playing on the big stage, in front of a large crowd. And they stole the show. They were the new faces for this exciting new movement that was transforming the world. But just three years later, in 1970, the king and queen of Monterey Pop, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, would both be dead from drugs. Jimi, back in September in London, and Janis, two weeks later, right there in L.A., on the Sunset Strip. And the following month, filming for Cisco Pike would begin. Now, Christofferson and Janis Joplin had a pretty strong and even romantic connection at the time. And we might talk about that a little more in part two of this episode. And in another reminder of just how far the Summer of Love had descended into chaos and madness by 1970, the Manson family trials would have been taking place in Los Angeles and dominating the headlines all that year, right up until Cisco Pike began filming. The killings had taken place in August of 69, one week before Woodstock. But the case was not cracked until December of 1969. So, while the shock of the murders happened in the summer of 69, the public only began to learn the details about the Manson family as their cases went through the legal system in 1970. And if the truth be told, the man on the street would have had a hard time telling the difference between the waifish Manson girls singing on the sidewalk in front of the courthouse in 1970 and the original Flower Children from back in 1967, or between Manson and his guitar, and somebody like Cisco Pike and his guitar. So that is the backdrop on which this film was made. So let's start with that opening scene. Um, The opening scene might be the best scene in the whole movie. Yeah, it's a great, the whole combination of the photography and the imagery and the music, it's just, it goes, it just sets the whole mood of the movie so perfectly. Yeah, in fact, pretty much that might be the best five minutes of the whole movie right there. It starts with um, Cisco's reflection in the filthy canal water of the Venice canals, and um, it pans up to him walking along the sidewalk with his guitar, and the sidewalks are all torn up. Basically, Venice is kind of a slum at this point. It's kind of a, it's kind of a beat-up place to live. Yeah, before it got totally gentrified and everything. And, and you're kind of wondering what his whole situation is. Is he just some rambling guy, or is he going somewhere? Or It's just a, it kind of, you're, at least for me, I was thinking, what's this fellow up to, just walking around the canal? And it's playing one of Christofferson's own songs, and it has his kind of warm, weather-beaten voice. I have seen the morning burning golden on the mountain in the sky. So maybe he got his heart broken, or maybe he's going somewhere to meet his girlfriend. You know, it's just, and then he's in the canals. It's just, it's kind of, it's kind of a romanticized imagery to start the movie out with. I thought. Yeah, right. That's a good call. It's very romantic. We don't know whether he's um, got somewhere to go or whether he's just kind of like some dude with nowhere to go. Yeah, and the whole imagery of loving her was easier. It has this kind of a a mournful vibe, like, you know, it was easier back then, or something happened, you know, maybe he has a regret about something. 
Yeah, there is something very sad and kind of doomed about this song, and kind of about the whole movie and all the characters in a way. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a good foreshadowing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not like a John Denver type. He's, he, there's, a, there's more of a mournful quality in his music. It's not just all happy-go-lucky. It's, you know, he's been around the block a few times, and, you know, it, it just has uh, this inherently enigmatic kind of a quality to it. Yeah, and another thing we should maybe mention, like, I don't know how viewers today would appreciate it, um, but at the time, Christofferson was kind of a, like a sex symbol, and just his music alone, like women were in love with him. People could fall yeah. in love with him just from that. So so these songs, just the songs themselves have power. And that may not be apparent. Like when you listen today, it just kind of sounds like some, it just sounds like some dude with a kind of roached country voice singing a dirge about women and hard loving. And it may not be apparent that this guy was like a genuine kind of uh, heartthrob at the time, a sex symbol. I was going to say a rock star, but not really rock per se he was a country star yeah i think nowadays people are more ironic and more cynical and back then they didn't have that you know you could take it more at face value you don't think oh here's this folk singer guy you know there was more it was more of a new thing back then definitely i mean 1972 or 71 it was more unique and it wasn't you know that whole image you know, it's almost like a stereotype now, but back then it was much newer. And there's a certain sincerity to it also. He he, he doesn't just sound like it's contrived, like he's, he's, he sounds like he's singing about himself, you know, it comes from a really deep place. Indeed, he is the prototype of the singer-songwriter, and he's like really the first guy to do that in the country genre, right? Like Dylan did it in rock and roll, and then a bunch of people did it in folk and rock after Dylan, but Christofferson was the first guy to really do it as a country star. And so he kind of fit into the counterculture of the late 60s that way. He was the first guy to really have that kind of countercultural credibility in the uh, country genre. And so at this point, he's got some albums out. He's written a lot of songs for people like Johnny Cash, and he has a huge reputation. I think he might have been named like the upcoming country star of 1970 or something like that. So he's kind of on the radar, but hasn't quite broken through yet. And people realize on top of everything else, oh, he's kind of good looking too. So let's definitely put him in a movie. And that's what this is. This is his debut. Yeah, you could almost think of the movies about himself. I mean, back then it might be, hey, maybe this is his own story of his real life. I mean, his music just seemed so much of about him, you know, and the words he uses were very... You know, just he had great imagery. It, it really, it wasn't just BS. I mean, he it was he was singing about things that you could tell it really meant a lot to him and things that he had experienced. Oh yeah, no doubt. And that, the thing is, I think these songs came out before the movie was even written or cast or anything like that. So it almost sounds like this song and especially the one we're going to hear later, um, that Chapter Thirty Three song. It almost sounds like they could be written about Cisco Pike, but. They were actually written by Christofferson before that about him. So as that song plays out, we kind of see the montage of him walking through the canals and walking through different parts of Venice, past a mural of um, the Venice boardwalk, which is on the boardwalk, which I kind of like, because even back then, like Venice Beach was not shy about self-publicity. It's kind of weird to see a mural of Venice Beach (laughs) in Venice Beach 52 years ago. Yeah, it's amazing to think this was 52 years ago. I mean, it seems like it could be, you know, 
almost nowadays. I mean, obviously Venice is a lot more gentrified, but yeah, it doesn't really seem that dated. I mean, in terms of the scenery and things like that. Yeah, that's for sure, right? Like that mural could be today pretty much or anytime. And something also about the mural, it adds a certain funkiness to it. Like, you know, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but when you see that mural, it, it's like you think about artists that are just kind of freewheeling, doing what they want, making these murals that are really colorful. And I don't know, it has, it has a certain funkiness to it, I thought. So as the song plays, um, Cisco brings his guitar to a music shop and... Um, puts it out on the counter, and this is the first we hear of his croaky voice. Like, we've seen him so far walking, and we've heard his music, we've heard him singing, and then he starts talking. And it's a little weird, to me it was a little weird anyway, because he's got this baby face, he's still clean-shaven for some reason, like, it just seems like he should have a beard if he's, like, playing this character, this sort of outlaw kind of guy with a biker name, Cisco Pike, but he's clean-shaven, but then he's got this, like, croaky voice like that it's almost like he's smoking cigarettes to kind of get his voice to sound like the deep you know experienced voice that he thinks that someone like him should have as a singer songwriter yeah and plus he always he has such an image of always having that beard like in a lot of his movies and now it's, it's hard to think of him without the beard and you're right he does have kind of a baby face and he has those really bright blue eyes that are kind of halfway closed or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. And then you hear this croaky voice. And there is kind of a dichotomy in that. Yeah. And um, so then the action begins. Um, he goes to the music shop and he puts his guitar on the counter and opens it up. And um, he comes across the owner of that store. Uh, I don't even remember the guy's name, but it's Roscoe Lee Brown, right? Did you recognize that guy? Yeah, totally the black actor. I've seen him, and yeah, he has that really distinct face and a really good-natured kind of vibe. But it's not so good-natured when he when he tries to when he tries to sell the when Christopherson tries to sell the guitar to him. I mean, it's you know he has his own limits of what he can do as working at the store. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I got to say about Roscoe Lee Brown, he kind of reminds me of um, Gavin McLeod a little bit. Like he's kind of like the black version of Gavin McLeod of Murray from um, Mary <laughs> Tyler Moore. He's he's kind of rocking yeah. that bald head. He's kind of like a hip grandpa or something, or like a hip, like a guy that's kind of new to the scene but wears the right beads or something. <laughs> and yeah, like you said, um, Cisco, this is the first of his bad breaks. Um, in fact, before he can even say anything. Roscoe Lee Brown says, hey, Cisco, how are you? A long time no see. You got any of that Peruvian cocaine for me? <laughs> yeah, that starts things off great. Yeah, that kind of sets the pattern, right? And Cisco says, no, man, I'm not dealing anymore because I got busted for dealing. And I just got done serving time for it. So that kind of gives us a little bit of his story. And he's there because he's actually getting back into the music biz. And in order to get back into the music biz... He needs to sell his favorite guitar uh, for some reason. Yeah, that must be hard for him, too. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem that hard, right? Because he's, well, he's going to see if he can get a thousand bucks for it. Right. Which That's is a good. lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, so Roscoe Lee Brown has a good way of telling him to, like, take his guitar and shove it. He says, uh, <laughs> yeah. he looks him in the eye and says, this is your guitar, Cisco." So you could take that two ways. One is he's saying, hey, Cisco, you're a musician. You've got to hold on to your identity. This guitar is your identity. You can't just sell it for a quick buck. 
But another thing he might be saying is that guitar ain't worth squat because you're basically a has-been at this point. So I, th I think it might yeah. be number two. It is kind of a double-edged thing because when he says that's your guitar, it is kind of like, yeah, that's kind of a nice thing. You know, it's his guitar, and I'm sure for musicians, they get sentimental about their... But there's also the double-edged thing, you know, maybe he's just saying, you know, you, you just take your guitar away, go go away, basically. It kind of sets the movie up on this uncertain tone where it's not just going to be this happy-go-lucky kind of movie. I mean, we were mentioning how the song already is like that, and then that first scene is like, yeah, he's going to get some bad breaks, probably, and the nice guy at the shop isn't helping him out. Yeah, right. That's our first indicator of, of how things are going to go for Cisco. So one thing I liked about that scene is um, Cisco treats the guitar kind of rough the whole time. Like if you're just watching the visual, he grabs it by the neck and he manhandles it. And he has a lit cigarette the whole time in his hand <laughs> while he's taking it out of the case, while he's handing it over to Roscoe Lee Brown. And while he puts it back in the case, he's got a cigarette at the same time. And it kind of makes an ugly sound when he puts it back in the case. It kind of squeaks and stuff. So it's just a nice little uh, touch. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's just kind of a rough guy. This uh, this is how musicians treat their guitars. It's like it's I don't know. It's, it's there's a certain familiarity with it, and it's like a tool for him. Even he doesn't treat it gently and kiss it like a lady or something. You know, he treats it rough. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I saw Neil Young in a movie and. He's playing his harmonica really beautifully, and then he like bangs on it to get all the spit out of it. But the way he does it, it's kind of like what you're saying. He's—I mean, it's basically—it's—it's it, it, it's his tool. It's like using a hammer. I mean, he uses it for what it can do for him, and you get the impression he can just toss it out when it serves its purpose and get something else. You, know, you have this—or at least I have this sentimental thing. It's like, oh, they love their instrument, but the instrument is just a means to an end. I mean, you know, they—they they use it for what they have to, and. When it outlives its usefulness, you know, that's the end of that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? And then the collectors, like, fawn over it. for Exactly. It has the sentimental attachment. And, yeah, the whole thing about the cigarettes is, you know, you forget, or at least I do, how much people smoked back then compared to now. I mean, there was just more smoking in the movie than, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they smoked a lot more back then, totally. Yeah, they sure did. And another thing is, like, in this film, the cigarettes are all like pretty much close to the filter when they're smoking it. Like it's, you know what I mean? It's small. Right. Whereas like in the eighties, they were still having actors smoke in films to be cool or whatever, but there would always be like a full cigarette and they would take like one puff and that would be it. Right. It's like very dainty or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like they weren't really smokers and they just had to get that one shot establishing them as smokers on film. But you can tell because the cigarettes were never smoked down to the filter. Full cigarettes, with they take one or two puffs and that's it. But yeah, totally. here they're all like smoking them down to the filter. And um, yeah, that's just an indicator of how realistic things really are. <laughs> yeah. When you smoke. <laughs> totally. In this movie, it's really the down and dirty, like, you know, they're really smokers. Yeah, they're really smoking and really drinking, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Although not a lot of drinking. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah. Okay, so Cisco leaves the pawn shop with his guitar, out of luck, and then the song picks up again, right? Loving her was easier than everything, anything I'll ever do again. And the, cre the credits continue to roll, and Cisco walks along the boardwalk. And he's kind of got that out of luck vibe going, but it's still a day at Venice Beach. So how bad could things be? It's still a beautiful day there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the way they juxtapose the music and the plot, like it's kind of a freewheeling kind of thing. Like, okay, we're going to interrupt the song and have a little plot, then we'll get back to the music, you know. And it's like that through the whole movie. Actually, it's like it's just interesting the juxtaposition of those two vibes, you know, like the music and then the plot, and then okay, we're back to the music again. Okay, and then he gets home. They live at this kind of cool place that is right on the boardwalk. That's where he pulls up to their blue door. And there's a package in the mail. So Cisco grabs the package, heads inside, and there she is, his old lady Sue. And she's sitting cross-legged on the table. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great entrance, you know. <laughs> it's like... It really is. And my first question is, like, why is she on the table? Is it because the floor is too dirty or cluttered with stuff, or is it just a better visual? Because it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I I know what you mean. It's it's kind of a stylized thing. Like, probably the floor is more dirty to sit on. The table's cleaner and everything, and it's just a nice image. And maybe keeping your balance is harder on the table, so it's like more of a challenge or something. So there she is, and... She remains silent and catatonic, I guess, and he kisses her and she doesn't respond. So he gets up behind her and starts feeling her up and still she doesn't budge. Could you imagine that now, like going up to somebody, she'd probably sue you for doing that or something. I mean, it's a nice thing. It's a nice touch to have, but I don't know. It just, the way he grabs her breast, it was just kind of funny. It, It just didn't seem... I don't know. Like, seeing that nowadays in a movie, I I don't know. Yeah, it would establish him as a creepy guy, for sure. Totally, yeah. It's like, hey, hey, what's this masher doing? He just grabs the girl's boobs before, you know, she could be in her trance right now. That might really... I don't know. It was just funny. The whole way women retreated in movies back then, like an easy rider, it's the same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, right. We'll we'll get into that. But, yeah, she... um... Yeah, not only does he, like, harsh her yoga vibe, which is bad enough, but he does it by by feeling her up. So that's just, like, unconscionable. The tragedy of this movie is Karen Black is, is so good and kind of a... Her talents are wasted in this movie and kind of all the movies of this era, because even though these were the new Hollywood films that supposedly had these new enlightened cultural values going for them, it's still kind of really sexist. And yeah, they're just the women are treated like crap and the women, they're just objects for the man to do his thing, really. That's the only way I could put it. Yeah. And it is funny the way she talks about making you know making love for 24 hours with the yogis and he's like well get ready for the one minute of missionary or something it's like you know making fun of that or something yeah there yeah there really there was no place for a female lead back in what do they call that the new hollywood right i mean it seemed like at least she had it pretty good because a lot of times it seems like the women are there to basically get choked out by jack nicholson in all those movies she just gets felt up Anyway, she does a she does an awesome job. I like every scene that she's in, and uh, 
Yeah, she definitely elevates her role. I mean, she adds a certain personality to it, a certain uniqueness to it, for sure. Just the way, just even the way she looks at him, like the way her expressions, you can tell she's a really good actress. Just and she adds these touches to her performance, the way she says her lines and looks at him and stuff. She's not just like a, you know, an empty-headed floozy, you know, like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, I mean, she, she, there's more depth to her. So let me ask you this, Ian. Is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, is that the first of these new Hollywood movies to actually do justice to a female lead character? That's a good question. It's definitely one of them. I mean, that definitely, you know, I can't think of any other movies that had such a strong female lead character, for sure. I mean, like, you know, in some of the other movies, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, they were strong characters, but they were part of a whole ensemble. So, yeah, I, I think that was kind of a landmark film in a certain way. I mean, I can't think of any other movies from that time period that had such a strong, you know, leading woman character. The movie Clued was really good in that respect, too. And that was before Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But, you know, the main in that one was Donald Sutherland. And Jane Fonda was playing really assertive women. But, you know, having the whole lead role like that, that, that was pretty unprecedented, at least in my opinion. And um, that was, of course, a Martin Scorsese movie. And who was one of the male co-stars in that? Chris Christopherson. And he was basically very similar to the way he was in this movie, just kind of playing himself. Very true. And he played like kind of a, he was kind of the dreamboat, right? Like he was her dream man until he kind of out of nowhere, like hit her kid. And she... I know, I remember that scene, and she doesn't like him doing that. Yeah, and she stands up to him about that. That, Yeah, that, that was kind of surprising when he hits the kid like that. And then he doesn't feel bad about it. He's like, your little kid needs a talking to, you know, or whatever. Yeah, but in a way, those were like the values of the time. And that's why maybe that's a good scene, because he's just doing what is pretty normal. That He was kind of a smart-ass kid, for sure. And so he got, he got smacked and she's just like, no, I'm having none of that. She represents this new way of thinking where you don't like, you don't use violence on kids, like in any case, at any cost for any reason. And so she ditches him and, you know, probably her own life suffers for that. But anyway, that's a whole other film we're talking about here. That was a good, that, that's a good comparison to make, definitely, just about how the women were treated back then and how that movie was a big landmark at the time. As you said, um, Cisco's like, hey, get ready for one minute, one minute a missionary. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it's funny. He's basically making fun of hippies a lot in this clip. Or, I'm sorry. He's basically making fun of hippies a lot in that scene. But she's, she's cool with it. They kind of, they laugh. They're, they're good. They're happy. Let's um let me try to play that clip now actually. Okay, so let's uh let's play that scene. This is Sue and Cisco's first scene. I see you got your tape back. Yeah. What'd they say? What do they always say? You're too good for them. That's what they said. 
Okay, so we get a few things from that scene. Um, yeah, definitely the way he's just om om on the range. I mean, you can tell it's just not the movie itself doesn't really take that seriously. It's just I think it's just kind of BS. Yeah, that's it's a good study of his character because she's he's making fun of the hippies for going om and all this yogi stuff that he doesn't quite get. He kind of puts it into his own framework, which is as a country song, home on the range. He also, she points out he has wrecked her trance. He, he ruined it, as she says, when he felt her up. But then she asks for a cigarette, and he says, yogis don't smoke. And that's kind of a funny scene. Um, you got a cigarette, just because it, it is the juxtaposition between her yogic trance and then like, hey, give me a cigarette. So Yeah, that, that kind of breaks the whole mood. It's like, I guess she's not so into it. You know, if she just automatically wants a cigarette. It just seems kind of un-yoga-like or something. Yeah, well, it's like they're trying to be these idealized versions of themselves. But in reality, they're just kind of like uh, slaves to their addictions. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, they they meant they talk about the tape. We realize that that's a tape he sent out to a label because he's trying to get interest for his new singing career that he's trying to launch. And they basically rejected him because they said he's too good for their purposes. Right. The point is his demos have been rejected, but she is supportive of him at this point. Yeah, she's she's one who's not rejecting him definitely. She's very open-minded about him and likes him and laughs. Like there's some laughter in the scene. It's you can tell they have a natural chemistry going. Indeed. And then the action abruptly switches. Once again they use that hard cut in music and all of a sudden we see this spinning jack in the box head. And um uh, what song is that? Wailing and Whoopin', it's called, I think. Yeah, kind of this honky-tonk, like, fast harmonica playing. Like, it's, you know, it kind of puts things in, into this upbeat perspective. And it does. It totally puts us in a different frame of mind. And we see that this is like a sort of a, a police rollout, I guess you'd call it. It is kind of jarring in a way. Like, I wasn't expecting that at all. Like, it definitely breaks the mood. So they just, they pan on this whole scene of these cops rolling out and it looks very military-like and like they're going to go kick ass on some hippies or something. And one of these cops is Detective Leo Holland. I think he's a detective. That is, of course, Gene Hackman playing Leo Holland there. It's weird to see him with all that hair, for one thing. (laughs) I was wondering if it was like a toupee or real hair. That's a good question. Because it almost looks like that. He definitely had a good head of hair in that. I mean, maybe it was a comb over partly or something. So that was a quick intro to him. We cut back to Cisco and Sue. They're hanging out at home, and um, he's playing the guitar again and singing the dirge again, and he gets her to sing the harmonies. And I think her harmonies are pretty good. Definitely, yeah. They're surprisingly good. I was thinking that myself. And, And I think that's really her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounded like her. I yeah. I think there was another movie where she was singing. Like I don't know if it was in Five Easy Pieces, but or Come Back to the Five and Dime, but she I think she does have a good voice in other movies too. It do, yeah, it definitely sounds like her. Yeah, so this is like once again a, a view of sort of them living their good life when they're home together, making music and just hanging out. This seems to be them at their happiest. And so we'll play that clip, but then of course, like everything else in the movie, um, it doesn't last for long before the phone rings and Cisco has to get up and get the phone and somebody's hitting him up for drugs again. So let's listen to that clip. 
I think she might have a better voice than him. Yeah, she has a certain, I, I think she does. I mean, there's a certain melodicness and, and uh, sensitivity or something. And she's a good harmonizer. That, that's hard to do, to really, do you know, kind of compliment his voice in this melodic way, like singing above him or below him or something. Yeah. Yeah, she does all right. Yeah. But then Dragon calls and kills the whole buzz, ruins everything by asking for drugs. Yeah. So now we cut back again to Leo Holland, who is the Gene Hackman character. He's driving. He's stressed out. He seems like he's being constricted by his own necktie. And... He's going somewhere, and we see in the next scene we see where he's going. He's at some sort of a trap house in the hills, with his gun drawn on a sort of a smiley-faced Latino guy, basically. Yeah, it's the, the generic smiling Latino guy who gets his ass kicked, or you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Holland does and the. Hackman, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, Hackman has that kind of a sweaty, uncomfortable quality pretty much the whole movie. Like something's bugging him, you know. Absolutely, and the, you're right, and that that does pay off in the end, kind of. Yeah. But but we do get like the the first inklings of that in this scene for sure. He's he's always uncomfortable. Um, so Holland knocks the smiling Latino guy out with his pistol, and he ends up stealing or intercepting a big package from Mexico that turns out to be a hundred individually wrapped kilos of weed, and um. These kilos are all, they're like the color and shape of bricks. It's just funny because they're like this bright red color, sort of the color of like a traffic hazard. You know, those hazard cones. It's like the most attention grabbing color there is. And I guess that's how kilos of weed came, just so they would be that obvious. Right. Just like, okay, this is weed. Let there be no mistake about it. Yeah, exactly. For the cops to see. But I'm always it's like, is that the same color as the Brady Bunch kitchen? I don't know. It's just that weird kind of 70s color. It's, is it orange? Is it red? It's... So we've established the fact that Gene Hackman's character, Leo Holland, has stolen this weed. And he's going to do something with it. And in the very next scene, he's pounding on Cisco's door in Venice, telling him to come out for a ride to the valley. And it starts up again with that fast harmonica music when that scene is going on. It's like, you know, it, it, it brings that kind of hyper vibe back to the movie. Yeah, right. That's Hackman's theme, and it's nothing good. Exactly. Nothing good for Cisco. 
So Hackman makes him an offer that he can't refuse. Basically, either come with me out to the valley or go back to jail. And so he has no choice, really. He goes with Hackman out to the valley, takes him to a padlocked garage, and reveals the 100-kilo bricks. Cisco Pike opens one up and sees that it's a kilo of seeds and stems, man. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, you think he'd be kind of bummed out or something, but maybe it was different back then or something. Yeah, totally different, right? Because Cisco is psyched. Um, apparently, this is yeah. what Primo Weed looks like in 1970, before they had Sinsamia, you know, before they had the technology of making the Superbuds down. So there is that classic scene, though, um, that has to be in every one of these movies where Cisco says, Cisco takes a look at the weed and with a knowing appraisal says to Hackman, this is bad dope, man. And he says, well, what do you mean? What's wrong with it? What do you mean bad? Not that kind of bad. Good, bad, man. Yeah. So we bad, though. Yeah. And Hackman offers to smoke it with them. I know. I love that clip. And let's, in fact, let's play it. What do you think? If they all come from the same place, it's bad, too, man. What do you mean? What's wrong with that? <laughs> no. I mean, good, bad. Go ahead and try it. If you're setting something up, Holland, it ain't going to work. No, I'll, I'll smoke some with you. Go ahead. Yeah, that's one of the things I kind of like about Hackman, his character here and in other movies. Like, even though he's kind of the asshole cop, he's definitely a tough guy. But he's also kind of like smiley and ingratiating. Yeah, he's more com it's kind of like with Karen Black, adding a complexity just because of his mannerisms. Like... You know, he's he's definitely kind of a villainous character, but he's not just totally one-dimensional. You know, he has, you know, he has his humanity so that he brings to the role, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he's he's like, hey, I'll smoke some with you. That's <laughs> yeah, the way he says it. I mean, as an actor, that must be hard playing the cops and, well, I'll smoke some with you. I mean, he makes it just sound so natural, you know, and it's kind of weird that he would say that. But Hackman, he just makes it just flow out just effortlessly just like it's a regular guy saying that regular cop i mean yeah yeah he he makes you think he's your buddy yeah and then in the next scene he'll he'll punch you in the gut though i know that's the thing there's a certain tension you know unease to him that he could easily do something like mess you up like even with the way he beats up the mexican guy earlier it's just kind of harsh so the next scene Christofferson visits an attorney. I guess he's an attorney, one of these like uh, countercultural attorneys, you know. Yeah, like a cool attorney. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Played by Severin Darden. So that's a name I would always see around in these kind of things. Yeah, that's a familiar name to me too, definitely. So as an attorney, he advises Cisco against getting involved at all. Basically, Cisco goes there and sort of tells him what just happened with Gene Hackman. And the attorney says, I wouldn't get involved at all. This sounds sketchy. It sounds like a setup. And Cisco says, yeah, but it's good grass. So as a stoner, the attorney then asks him how much a brick of this primo grass might cost. And Cisco seems to have made his first sale right there in the law office. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's a, he's a pretty cool lawyer. And so in the next scene, um, which takes place at the Santa Monica, would you call that Palisades Park? The Santa Monica Palisades? Yeah, I would say it's definitely right. Yeah, I think it's Palisades Park. It definitely seems like it's right there. 
Yeah, it's that little cool strip of land right on the cliff that's kind of above the Pacific Coast Highway. Yeah, good place for a shot. And so Cisco uh, or Hackman kind of lays out the situation right there. Um, he's got the hundred keys of this Primo grass. It's his to sell. He's got to sell it by Monday morning, and this is Friday. And he's got to get Hackman the ten thousand bucks by Monday morning. So Hackman needs the ten G's. He's got a hundred kilos for Cisco to sell, and whatever else, whatever other profits he makes are his to keep. But he's got to get him that ten grand by Monday morning, and this is the challenge. So Cisco wants more information, like why exactly does a cop need to get it by Monday morning? Like that sounds like somebody who's in debt to a loan shark or something. Yeah, definitely something's going on there for sure. And Hackman explains that he's got his money tied up in stocks and bonds with a margin call due coming on Monday. But it's businessman stuff and nothing a hippie like Cisco Pike would understand. Yeah, it seems a little bit like at that point I was thinking, is he just going to, is he like, you know, putting the the old switcheroo on him like he's saying that and then he's going to bust him anyway? I mean, you wonder if he's on the level with that. It just sounds like kind of a weird excuse or something. Yeah, for sure. And it was kind of weird the way he jogged up, too. Like, Hackman, Christofferson was waiting there, you know, slouching around at the, the Palisades, waiting for him. And we see him jog up, like, all fast with his chest out. And that's kind of weird because, like, jogging w- w- wasn't really a trend yet. Maybe it was at that point, but probably not. So it's just kind of weird mm-hmm. that he's... And and it's, he's not even sweating, either. It was kind of interesting. I can think he would be sweating after all the jogging he's doing in the hot sun or something. Yeah, it seems like maybe he walked the whole way and then like just jogged up the last block or something just to... Yeah, something's going on with that character, definitely. It's kind of weird. Yeah, and I think there might be some payoff towards the end of the movie about that. But uh, for now, it's just weird to see somebody jogging in 1970 before the uh, jogging fad really takes off. Okay, so now Cisco's got his work cut out for him, um, and he gets to work. Sue comes home and confronts Cisco cutting up bricks of the weed on the kitchen table. So she confronts him about dealing, and he lies and says that this pot is just a personal stash for the two of them. Let's play that audio clip. So this clip is kind of loud because that's him hacking up the uh, brick of weed. So you'll hear a loud cutting noise. That's what that is. You were going to quit, Cisco. You promised me. I did, man. I quit. What's all that? Grass. Some of the best I got ever had, man. It's really good. It's all buds. Take a look at that. Going to quit? I did quit. This is for us. We're going to smoke it, baby. I ain't going to sell this stuff. Why are you cutting it all up then? Got to ration it. I don't want to smoke it all at once. I want to give some to give a piece of it in a way to Rex when I check them tapes tonight. Sure hope you didn't spend a lot of money. You know we're going to have to pay the uh, lawyer. Didn't cost a thing, man. Buffalo gave it to me for that stuff I fronted him. It's dynamite, too, man. It'll rip your head off. You want to try some? All right, so he sweet talks her. He says it's dynamite stuff. It'll rip your head off. And this is just for us, baby. I'm not dealing anymore. This is for us. So she's suspicious. Like, if it's for us, why are you cutting it up? But he has an answer for everything. And she actually ends up saying she's sorry at the end of that scene. 
Yeah, it's interesting how she starts out being assertive and then she just kind of gives in to him and says she was sorry. Yeah, it's interesting also, two things from that scene, that he's already anticipating his visit with uh, Rex at the studio. He's still shopping his demo tape around. He wants to have his buddy Rex at the recording studio listen to the tape and hopefully get some interest and sign him and all that. So he's thinking about that. But he's also lying, saying that uh, he got the weed from uh, Buffalo, who we'll meet later. But uh, Buffalo is sort of the other big dealer in the, in the area. And, of course, he didn't get any weed from Buffalo. But he's just, in other words, he's building up a ever-increasing web of lies. And she's buying it for now, but he's just getting in deeper with the lying. And that's probably not going to end well. Yeah, and I just wanted to also mention, in that scene where she confronts him, it just sounds, I know I said this already, but she just sounds so natural, the way she's arguing with him. She's just such a good actress in that scene. I mean, it could be corny, but or it could be generic, but she really just plays, she really does that so convincingly, I think. You really, at least for me, it seemed very genuine, like when she's confronting him, and even though she eventually, you know, you know, acquiesces to him. It, it, she just does that really well, I thought. They're a good match. They have a good, you know, interaction, I thought. Yeah, for sure. I like her. She's very soft-spoken, but natural. So the next scene, Cisco is now in drug-dealing mode, I guess you could say. He rents a brown station wagon. And his dealing theme comes on, which is a song called The Pilgrim, Chapter 33. And um, and I thought there was some really good footage of PCH and Palisades Park during that scene when they're playing the music. It just, it, was, it, was, it goes really well. I mean, for anyone that's lived in Santa Monica, it's just nice to see it back then, the scenery with that music playing too. Oh yeah, I love that scene. In fact, let's um, let's just kind of go through that. Um, so yeah, he sets off on his odyssey of dealing as the song plays, and they just show him making all the rounds of his old people. He's got a first of all, I love the way he's got to do it before digital technology and everything. He's got uh, the old black book, the old phone book with his contacts written in there. And he's got the payphone, and it doesn't even have an area code on the payphone. It's just got the seven digits, because, like, area codes were not a thing, you know, back then. Yeah, it really, that's so true. It was like 213, but who cares anyway? It was like, that that covered the whole L.A., Santa Monica thing. Exactly. And the valley, (laughs) even the valley at the time. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So he starts making his rounds, and it's just sort of a montage uh, as the music plays. It's all silent, but we get the idea. He just goes from basically from hippie to hippie. Um, you know, it, remind, it reminds me of that song you wrote about stones in the east, stoned in the west, kind of. Well, yeah. I mean, it definitely had that same kind of a vibe, like stoned in the east, stoned in the... Like, Christofferson could have been singing that song during the montage almost because he in in that song he makes specific reference to drugs in the lyrics it's interesting I mean but with that laid-back voice he has it's just you know just this natural thing and everything yeah and it's a great autobiographical song of Cisco Pike which is interesting because he actually wrote the song before there was even the movie or him starring in it like that just came from before his life before and yet it works so well for this character. 
Yeah, it's weird because he didn't actually write the screenplay for the movie, but you almost wonder if whoever wrote the screenplay was, you know, basing it on Christofferson himself or something. Apparently not. Apparently he was not the first choice. Yeah, it's because the music goes so well, like you were saying, with the, the story. It's, it's almost as if it was written for it or something. Yeah, that song does. Definitely. Yeah, so I, I like the visual because like the, the camera pans down to the copper brown station wagon that he's driving. And they're like one of the scenes he's parked on an overlook. And it's supposed to be this panoramic view of L.A., but it's like just, I don't know, it's all smoggy looking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not so glamorous. It, 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 it's just really harshly hot out and smog and everything. It's not the most glamorous, yeah, scenery. Yeah, it's, In that one particular scene, definitely. Yeah, and they also say that just this kind of goes along with the luck of the film in general. Like they just happen to have really crappy weather for filming that week or those weeks when they were filming it just happened right. to be really bad light even though the light in la is almost always perfect they got those bad weeks right so he's parked on that overpass and he's got the weed laid out on the hood of the station wagon where everybody can see it in those bright yeah, red wrappings like let's not be any more indiscreet about it. <laughs> you know, just laying it right out there yeah the world's most conspicuous drug deal but uh <laughs> It's kind of funny because the station wagon, it's the hood is like the size of a ping pong table. It's just these cars are so huge. You can use it for like portioning out your drugs. You know, it's just I like how big that hood is. Yeah, it's like perfect for that. Yeah. It's like I can see Monty Hall, you know, mentioning that on Let's Make a Deal or something. Yeah, he could do a whole showcase on the hood of that car. <laughs> exactly. So as we mentioned, um, we feel like the scene was set up to show off the views of L.A., but it ends up looking crappy, and we don't know if it's because of the smog, the bad weather, or just bad cinematography, because this seems like the kind of production where they might accidentally leave the lens cap on or something like that, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of got that first-time vibe to it. Yeah, the whole movie just seems kind of like they're making it up as they're going along or something. Yeah. And then, so it's a, the montage continues. He's going from one hippie to another. They all got like Lindsey Buckingham hair, right? The big Jew fro. And they're all wearing hippie clothes. They all look like one another. And Cisco's selling them all weed. I, I like that one cut because he goes from a junkyard to like what seems to be a swank, like a movie set with this European director, this European looking director, I should say. And so he's like, Selling weed to the junkyard guy and selling weed to the Hollywood producer, who might be Roman Polanski. Who knows? Yeah, you never know. But that's the juxtaposition. This is Cisco's world. And he goes high, he goes low. But he, he covers all the heads. He knows them all. And they all yeah, want his all, weed. All different walks of life. I mean, they don't have show him selling to a yogi, but they might as well. It's like he's covering all the bases. While he's sitting on his table cross-legged. Okay, so the, then he's driving again, and this time he's actually smoking a doobie as he drives. He seems like he's kind of in the groove now more. He's feeling pretty good. He's doing good business. A cop siren starts wailing behind him, but he's not worried at all because he just somehow knows they're not there for him. Lady Luck is on his side for the moment. Right. So he just lets the cops go right by. His next stop is at a doorman at a fancy hotel. The handoff goes smoothly. 
And then that's when he goes, I think, onto the PCH. We see him driving that cool scene that you appreciated, right, where he's driving along the Pacific Coast Highway through Santa Monica. Yeah, that was really nice. That really brought back a lot of memories. It's a good scene, and um, we enjoy it while it lasts because then things start to go awry, right? Because his next scene, he rolls up to another sort of open expanse with a million-dollar view of L.A. below, and he's making another deal with a hippie, like they're parked out where everybody can see him. Right. It's like, let's not, you know, make too, you know, not make too big a deal. We'll just deal some weed right out in the open. No big deal. Yeah. Like, what could be, what could go wrong? And this looks like it's going to be a pretty big deal. Cisco's unloading, like, a lot of bricks, six or seven, I think I counted, six or seven bricks of weed from the back of the station wagon to this guy. And the guy's looking around a little bit. He's kind of as one does when you're making a big deal like that. And he happens to notice this kind of guy who looks like a dirty old man on a plateau above them. He's wearing a dark suit and he's looking at them through binoculars. And of course, that's not some dirty old man. That's Gene Hackman. And let's, let's play a clip on that. Okay. What's that? Boy, what's what? On the hill. Who the hell's that? Somebody you know? No. You try to set me up. No, man. Hey, man. I don't know nothing about that. Who the hell is that? Okay, so that's the world's worst drug deal going down in flames. Yeah, totally. It's like, and what the hell is Gene Hackman doing watching them anyway? (laughs) It's like, good Lord. Yeah, right. So many questions about that scene. And unfortunately, there's no payoff. Yeah, they never explain it. I mean, you know, Hackman never, like I was thinking, what the hell? It's just weird. It's almost like Hackman wants to sabotage Christofferson or something. Exactly. There's really no other explanation for it. And we never do get the payoff. And that's when the movie kind of starts losing the plot for me. It just... Yeah, it's kind of like if they're not going to explain that, like anything is up for grabs. I mean, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah, nothing has to make sense anymore. It's just going to be these people doing these things. Yeah. We're just watching it for kicks at this point, basically. Yeah, I mean, I was curious to see what was going to happen with Hackman. Like, what's, what's he, you know, you wonder what his whole story is, if it's like why he would do that. Or, I mean, he definitely has something bugging him. So, you know, maybe he had so much energy, he just couldn't resist watching Christofferson in action. But, you know, you just have to make these speculations because you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, you'd think he's a cop. He would know how to do something undercover instead of standing there. <laughs> Right out in the open, yeah. It's weird. Yeah, and so they never do resolve it. Um, They do that chase scene through the valley, which is kind of cool. It's nice to see um, all the old, like, 1970 cars during that chase scene in the valley. Yeah, if you think about it, this was filmed, like, a few years before The French Connection. But that was a whole different vibe in that movie. But it's just, it's kind of similar in that chase scene. Like, Like, you see different 
landmarks and different things. You know, like you were saying, it's just it's visually really interesting to see that whole scene. Yeah, in fact, I think the French Connection was actually filmed before while they were filming this. And it, yeah, I mean, talk about two different movies. I mean, but that that chase scene brings to mind French Connection a little bit for me. Yeah, right. It's Hackman. It's like screeching cars. Totally. But at no point does Christofferson say, dude, what the hell are you doing? You just sabotage <laughs> that deal. Yeah. Like that would have been nice to get some of that. I think he might say something. Well, I think he says you sabotage the deal, but he never, he just kind of leaves it at that. It's like, okay, sabotage the deal. We'll just go on with what we're doing <laughs> or something. Yeah. He didn't say why. So Cisco says he quits, and Hackman basically follows him home. Basically, plays rough with him. Says you're gonna have, you better finish the deal. You better keep dealing for me. Let's let's play that audio clip. Okay. You're gonna sell that stuff for me. You understand? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna have my money for me Monday. Understand? Yes. Huh? Yes. That's ten thousand dollars. Understand? Yes. You agree? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's weird how Cisco just (laughs) readily submits to Hackman. I mean, I don't know. It just seems too easy or he's too, he does it too easily, Christofferson. When you see the visual of that, it really shows that dynamic because he's talking tough and he is tough. You think his name is Cisco Pike. He talks tough. He doesn't take shit. But then he just, like, lets Hackman, he assumes the position, basically. It's a very strange and kind of disturbing scene. But, again, at this point, we're not really going, we're not really expecting reality too much anymore, right? (laughs) Exactly. It's like he's kind of the victim. He's like, yeah, yeah, so you're going to do what I say, yeah. You're going to, it's, yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's like he's this victim who's just begrudgingly accepting the abuse from, you know, the persecution from Hackman. This discussion will continue in the next episode of The TV Room. No, I'll, I'll smoke some with you. Go ahead. <laughs>